Have you ever wondered why almost all the health and wellness information you see out there is so white, cis, able-bodied, and het? I know I have. And as a queer black registered dietitian, I got to tell you, I'm not into it. I believe health and happiness should be accessible to everyone. That is precisely why I wrote Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal yourself image, and achieve body liberation, and why I host Body Liberation for All. The road to health and happiness has a couple of extra steps for chronically stressed people like queer folks and folks of color. But don't worry, my guests and I have got you covered. If you are ready to live your best queer life, you are in the right place. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I've been cyber stalking both of you in addition to fawning over the book and looking at my favorite sections again, even though I'm not the target person for the book, it feels like a really good resource for me to share with other people who want me to explain to them how to not be problematic. And just knowing that I have a resource for that feels like a relief because so many people act like they want to know what to do and will suck you dry energy wise. But if you tell them you could probably find another resource for that, they'll come up with more ways to keep pulling on your energy. And I love that I can just be like, no, read this. And if you're not willing to do that, you don't really want to know. So that's very helpful. Can you tell us about why you felt like now was the time for your book? It's a great question. And I think we've had, so we've had the podcast, right? By the same name, Dear White Women for two, it's getting close to three years now. It's hard to, hard to imagine that when we started back in April, 2019, that anyone save like the five family members that we could have strong armed into listening to it, but actually. Oh, so, you actually were able to get family uh, to listen? Well, it's literally impossible <laughs> to get friends and family to listen to coming out of my mouth. I'm like, well, not immediate family. Okay. Sometimes my mom will listen okay. and then she'll be like, why did you say that? And I'm like, oh, okay. You listened to that episode. I think we recognize that not all people are podcast listeners and I'm staring at one like on the screen. Um, <laughs> Sort of bad, but you know, <laughs> I'll still send her like episodes every once in a while and feel like 50, 50 shot that she'll listen. But we thought that also the message and the, and the platform that we have was really important to get out to a larger audience besides just the podcast, right? In different mediums and people learn different ways and in different ways and people reflect in different ways. And so we sort of came to the realization around the fall of 2020 that we wanted to do this book. And of course, you know, there's just a few things happening in 2020. So, you know, Sarah asked me at that time, because we were homeschooling our kids and, you know, trying to handle everything else, if like, why, why we should write the book. And I said in that moment, and it was my most honest truth in that moment that I think we should write it because I'm trying to save my kids' lives. And, you know, it's one of those sort of responses when you do the speed round of like questions and is, it is the thing that comes to your mind first, but that is my truth, right? And I, I feel to this day that if one person reads this book and that person has the ability in some way to make a decision as to whether my sons live or die, right? Or anyone else who looks like my sons live or die like that, and they make a different decision than they would have, that is enough, right? That is more than enough. And I think that about the podcast too, but the book is something that's so tangible and is similar yet different to the podcast that I feel like that's the goal. That's the singular goal. And so that's why. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge motivation. I know there are a lot of people who, when they get into activism, they have 
motivators that are not stable or consistent. So like maybe they are empathizing with someone they're friends with, but if that friendship goes sour, they may also lose interest in the movement. So it's certainly a different thing when it's blood relatives who you're worried about or whether it's just intrinsic to you to be concerned about everyone's safety, which is also another motivating force for a lot of people. And those things are stable. Whereas just because someone you have befriended is suffering, you know, I don't know that that's a motivation that would really last. And I've seen like fair weather activists, especially in 2020, that couldn't even hang in there for a year. And like you mentioned, you started the podcast long before this second wave of the civil rights movement. Ooh, I like that you yeah. called it the second wave of the civil rights movement. It, it feels like, yeah, like no one w- was framing it that way. It was so interesting to me how many people acted like BLM was brand new when these are precisely the same issues that we've had since reconstruction. Like the U.S. loves to do, they say they're going in to help people that are suffering when it's really a play for money or resources. Like they do that overseas over all the time. That's also what it looks like. Maybe I'm biased because I was told it was a war of Northern aggression, which, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But like the perspective is, well, they came down here for resources and for power, not for humanitarian reasons, which vibes with how the U.S. generally is. And then left too soon, as they always do, like before any area stabilized and People just started murdering Black folks left and right anytime they had two red cents to rub together and decided that maybe they should be treated like equals. It was always a problem. And the police have been part of enforcing systemic racism in my part of the country, at least since Reconstruction. And so for anyone to think it was a new problem was just so bizarre to me when it's the same thing we've been dealing with since the beginning of this country being formed. I I love, I love that you said that. And Sarah knows like I'm, I will continually like hammer this point home on the podcast because I, I think that people completely think this just came out of nowhere, right? Or this is like, we were doing just fine, because we had this civil rights movement in the 60s. And like, we fixed it, you know, and, and once the Civil War was over, we also fixed that, right? And so there's periods that we've fixed. And so why is there such an issue now? And I think that shows up in, in, you know, a lot of different ways. But you're absolutely right in that it was sort of it has been baked into the founding of our country. And that reconstruction in particular, was sort of designed to be this fix, but it never, it didn't go down that way. And in fact, people were still trying to sort of create the world that that existed before Reconstruction, right? Just without using the word slavery. And so I think that that is so important to understand that history because those are the cycles that keep repeating. And if we don't understand that, we're continually looking at it like it's this new issue and that, you know, oh, we've got this new problem. We've got this BLM movement or we've got, you know, Asian hate and all of this is so new, but it's not. And I think that, I, so I love that you said that. That's a great, I'm glad that you mentioned Asian hate thinking that maybe that's new because I was not aware of, I, of course I knew about internment camps and Japanese people being robbed of their property. But I didn't realize that the legacy of anti-Asian sentiment was even older than that. And I guess I never fully processed that the U.S. never apologized or did any kind of reparations for that. And the idea that you can just steal people's property and no one have an issue with it in a country that claims it's all about you being able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and get what you've worked for, but it's okay to rob certain people of what they've worked their whole lives to get. So it's interesting when you're not directly affected by something, or you think you're not affected by something, how 
you will think something's brand new and how frustrating that is for people who've been saying the whole time, this is a problem. How did you experience that with one Asian parent? I wanted to start with the book because you know, with podcasts, you never know if somebody's going to hear the beginning, the middle or the end. So I wanted to let everybody know Dear White Women is available for purchase. This is an excellent resource for you to share with allies or people who are pretending to be allies that (laughs) need to show that they're willing to put forth some effort to make changes because it really is work to be sincere when it comes to anti-racism. This isn't just something you can do casually. It's going to require you read, be willing to read at least a book, right? But going back to your motivation for starting the podcast and your experience as multiracial people, can you talk a little bit about what your experience with race and your Japanese culture was growing up? Yeah, I think we have both similar and slightly different experiences with that. I grew up on the East Coast to a Japanese immigrant mom and a white dad. And I grew up going to Japanese Saturday school. So like every Saturday, at least 11 years of my schooling life, I was spending in Queens or with, you know, in a different community than where I was growing up. I would spend summers in Japan with my grandparents. So being Japanese and biracial was a very like foundational part of my identity. I was very clearly Japanese and white with, you know, eating my mom's, like the Japanese food that she made for our home and and all of that sort of stuff. So I never really felt like I was always the quirky independent kid because I never really felt like I fit in with the kids at like Western, like at American school but I was always liked enough, you know? And then I also had this other crowd where I wasn't quite Japanese enough. And so I felt like I understood that there were so many different perspectives and they, and by virtue of spending summers in Japan growing up instead of summer camp, my mom was like, you have to go spend time with your grandparents. You're going to go see them. And I would just go to Japan. I knew that the American way was not the only way from a very young age. When the anti-Asian hate came up, I have to say like, even for myself, I didn't realize the history of it because where I grew up, Japanese people were like, there was a lot of Japanese people, like all these New York city had a lot of Japanese companies. And at that point, Japan was at its economic heyday and it felt viscerally like it was very respected. So the fact that I would be so scared that my mom was going to go to the supermarket and I was afraid that she grabbed the produce that someone else wanted and they might punch her in the face. Like I, I, it was really a different experience going through that during the pandemic when, when this wave of vitriol and and hate was retargeted at the Asian population in this country. How did your mother respond? Because a lot of times I find when I'm surprised by intense racially motivated violence, that the generation before me is confused as to why I'm surprised. How was your mom's reaction? I mean, my mom does color her hair blonde. Like she's got light hair. Like she's, if you didn't look at her face, you from behind, you wouldn't know, right? From certain perspectives, my mom, she was an immigrant. So she, she is an immigrant. So it's not like she's had, she's had the 40 something years of experience living in this country, but didn't grow up here to experience it in her foundational years, any racism against her. And I think she was just kind of like, I'll be careful. I just won't go out to whatever places. And I, I'm just, she was careful because of COVID anyway, but I think not knowing, I don't think she'll listen to this particular podcast because she doesn't necessarily listen to her. So I'll speak more freely, but you know, I don't think she's ever felt like she fully belongs in the U S I think after my dad died at her funeral, she was like, Oh, people, people came and talked to me. Like I'm not just the wife of like, they actually want to maintain a friendship and a relationship with me. So I think there was an element for her as an immigrant too, of not fully feeling rooted here. And, and I don't think she had explicitly racist things done to her necessarily when she lived in the U S but I don't think that she ever felt like she fully belonged either, but I don't think she felt physically threatened being there where she is. Did you feel a sense of belonging when you would visit Japan to spend time with your grandma? I look so foreign to them. Oh, I remember being so they would send me to Japanese summer school. Like it wasn't summer school. It was the school year, but they wanted me to experience school in Japan and their school doesn't let out in the summer like American schools do. So I remember being there for a month and like walking with the kids to go to the local school 
and the principal, like, like I, I loved my classmates. They were all fascinated at the scrunchies that American kids wear at that point and, and all this stuff. But I stood outside with the school principal at dismissal one time because he wanted to make sure that other kids knew that I was there. And even in front of the school principal, they would shout out like foreigner, go home. You don't like, you don't belong. Oh no. So no, the, uh, Japan is a very homogenous society. And especially if you oh, get outside yeah. of the big cities, people literally may have never seen someone who's not ethnically Japanese in their lives. So, so yeah, that I definitely didn't belong there, but I guess in some ways, you know, the upside is you learn to navigate your own path pretty early on when you grow up in, in those yeah. sort of ways. My little brother lives in Japan and he and his wife just had a baby at the end of last month. And I'm just wondering what her experience will be like, because his wife was explaining that there even are, there's a word for someone who is Japanese, who has lived outside of Japan. So that even that makes you different, different enough for there to be a name for it. So it will, I think, require a lot of love and attention for that not to damage the baby psychologically. What was your experience like, Misasha? Yeah, so as Sarah mentioned, there are some similarities in our experiences. So I grew up in, on the West Coast, and I'm the daughter of a Japanese immigrant father who happens to be 6'2 as well, which is not... So like from the start, our family is not sort of your stereotypic Japanese family, right? So he's incredibly tall. The whole family is, which was great because like on subway platforms in Japan, I could see my whole family over everyone else. Now people are getting taller. So this is not as easy, but anyway, you know, and, and to a white mother, right. From Seattle and who happens to be the, she was the daughter of a civil war historian. So that's also why I loved like just tying it to history, but growing up in Los Angeles, there was a very clear Japanese American identity there, right. Because the, of the internment camps and what had happened historically to Japanese Americans who were basically told when that executive order was signed by Roosevelt, that like, Hey, we know you're Americans, but we're, we're actually going to just put you in camps and we're just going to, you know, because we're at war with Japan. So we'll just take all of your property and you get a suitcase and you go and live in sort of these barracks, like horse barracks. We'll just do that till the end of the war and let's see, you know, how that goes. And so there was very much that cultural history in Los Angeles. And at the same time, you have my father, who's an immigrant who grew up in post-war Japan. And so his Japanese identity was very much not that, right? Not the Japanese American cultural identity. So it's very clear in our house. He was Japanese, you know, we were Japanese and American, but we were not Japanese American, if that makes sense, just culturally. So yes. mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time in little Tokyo, which again was sort of different from my dad too, because he was like, oh, this is very culturally Japanese American. He's like, I want to go to the Japanese grocery store. You know, I want to go buy these things. And my dad was also going back to Japan and still does even through COVID, you know, like regularly because all of his family is still there and all my extended family. So I did spend summers in Japan. I escaped Japanese school because I was doing ballet on Saturdays. And so that was like my trade-off as long as I was doing ballet. And I think that then I sort of aged out of Japanese school. So managed. Well, is your Japanese still strong? <laughs> it is, but that was due to a lot of work later on. So I was sad at the time, which is why my kids now are taking Japanese and have completely gone that same route and said like, oh, I will, I will never thank you for, you know, this. And I'm like, wrong. You will thank me later on. <laughs> Maybe not today as you're writing your kanji, like your characters, like, but you will. But I think for me growing up and having the last name Suzuki, right. It was, everyone was kind of trying to figure out. And also my parents made up uh, my first name. Cause they thought like, you know, will be great. All Japanese will think it's Japanese. All Americans will think it's American. And that was a total fail because all Japanese think it's American. And they're like, oh, that must be, it's not a Japanese name. So it's probably an American name. And all Americans were like, hmm, that's vaguely Eastern European. Like, are you Russian? And I'm like, all right, like <laughs> no one wins in this scenario. But you know, it was my parents, good they, had, they had some good intentions over there. <laughs> so with a made up first name, and a Japanese last name, like, first of all, you could always tell during roll call when my name would come because everyone would be like, 
mm, like, mm. and so there'd be a big pause and I'm just like, mm, okay. But also it really roots you in who you are because like Sarah, I was not white enough for white spaces at times. I was not Japanese enough for Japanese spaces. I definitely wasn't Japanese enough in Japan. And then people would ask, you know, once I got to a certain age, is your husband Japanese? And they're like, no, my dad is I'm like, oh, so you're, you are Japanese. You understand the Japanese need for whatever, which was very strange. So it was continually, people were trying to put you in a box. And once people, enough people try to do that, you're like, no, I'm just going to build my own box. So being very clearly rooted in both identities has been something that is, has been important for me my entire life. And so it resulted in giving my kids Japanese first names, which everyone now I've done the same thing to my kids. Everyone's like, mm, this name, this kid, I don't know what's going on here. So in Japan and US, like it is, it is a challenge, but they too are very strong in who they are. That's the gift I'm trying to give them. Although they might not thank me for that now either. When did you experience that, that clarity that even if the rest of the world is acting like we don't know what a multiracial person is when there are lots of multiracial people. When did you realize like you don't need other people to get it? You are who you are and you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. I mean, I would like to say like super young, right? But that that's not the truth. I think it was probably really college. I think when I was very... I remember going to an Asian student association meeting when I was a freshman, like one of those, you know, welcome new students kind of meetings. And I walked in and I felt people very clearly looking at me like, why are you here? And maybe some of that I projected, but some of that I, you can feel, right? You feel when people don't think you should be in a space. And then I was like, why am I so concerned about how Asian they think I am, right? Because I know how Asian I am, right? I, I know. And so yeah, I think from that point on, I was very, very clear about wanting and clearly going to be both rather than either or, you know, and trying to fit in. Yeah. Now, since we're all in the U.S., you probably spent a lot of time in majority white spaces. Did you feel comfortable in those spaces or did you generally have to deal with microaggressions or hearing people say nasty things about Asian people, not remembering that you are also Japanese? I, so Misasha and I talk about the difference in our social circles sometimes because I, and I have to do some thinking on whether this was applicable, like, pre-moving to predominantly white states, but I definitely spent a lot of time living in Midwestern to like, like Colorado's where I'm at now. They are very predominantly white states. I've never had a, like, I have a lot of white friends. I have, it was only this year actually that I, was it this year? Yeah. Time warp. I think it was this year that Atlanta happened. And I finally sort of recaptured my wholeness, if you will, could because I think the first half of my life was so heavily in Asian and multicultural settings. And then I spent basically the last 15 years living in Arizona and in Colorado. And I think I just dropped part of my Asian identity. It was not, it was sort of, you know, when you see what's reflected around you, like absolutely felt very comfortable. And I've never seen people say anything about Asian people in my presence, at least, you know, my kiddo has experienced that. And I'm really impressed that she stood up to someone and was like, what do you mean by that? And she's sort of 12 talking to her friends about race and the fact that she's Asian and leading that discussion. But, but to me with adults, that's never happened. Oh, that's nice. So Sarah and I do have very different friend circles. I don't actually spend a lot of time in now by choice in solely white female spaces. It is not where I feel really comfortable. I think throughout the years I have though, but because of who my immediate family is, it is less comfortable for me because I feel like there is a lot of judgment that happens in the, in those circles and ones that I just, I feel like I can't really be myself. So as I was telling Sarah, like I can code switch <laughs> 
you know, in, in those spaces. And I mean, I owned a fitness studio for a while, so I was definitely in a white female space in that. But yeah, whether I, I can move through those spaces and have sort of superficial discussions is one thing, but whether I feel really grounded in them is another. So the people that are, except with the, a couple exceptions, the people who are largely like, even at our, who come to our house, I mean, no one really comes to our house these days because of COVID, but the people who are in that closer circle are generally people of color. And I want to add to that what you just said, because I completely actually reflect or I feel the way you feel. I'm not saying if I really am honest, it's not that I feel grounded or comfortable or fully seen. It's just, those are the default people that I've hung out with for so long because of the kids' parents, you know, the, the, the people that are in our circles, but it explains to me a little bit why I think I've constantly been a little unsettled in our friend group since we moved out here. And so I, when I have found I do feel way more at home in many multiracial communities. I for sure feel better. I love that you, yeah, you can hear, feel that and say it because I think sometimes people feel guilt around not feeling super close or safe sometimes in white friend circles, but there are just so many things that you know are not safe to discuss. And it just feels so much more comfortable where you can be somewhere where you're just a multifaceted human being instead of the person of color who's like the authority on all POC things or the person who can give you permission to use certain words. It's funny when I was research listening to other interviews you've done, I find it fascinating how many white people want to know why they can't use the M word. And my question would be, why do you care so much? Like that sense of entitlement that you are used to having access to literally everything that you're going to lose sleep over not being able to use a racial slur without being criticized. Like, seriously, let's look at the question. But the fact that people are asking that so often, it's, it's trippy. And I have people ask me that while well, pre-pandemic, but the stress of the pandemic, I was like, I don't even have time for the types of white, I used to call them friends, now I'll say acquaintances, that would ruin my Saturday night like that. I just don't have the energy for it. But it is very nuanced deciding who you want to make room for and who you have room to give grace to. And for me, it would have to be people who've also poured a lot of energy into me as an individual. So it's not that those acquaintances are canceled. There's just like a million other things I'd rather do than hang out with them. Have you been kicking around the idea of starting your own podcast? If you have started doing the research or if you already have a show, then you know how many moving parts there are involved in podcasting. From learning new tech to clarifying your message to overcoming your fears about saying what needs to be said, speaking truth to power. If you have a revolutionary message or a message that is in any way countercultural, if you are a queer person, if you are a BIPOC person, then you know saying what needs to be said sometimes feels really challenging. Since I've started working with Unapologetic Amplified, all of the moving pieces, all of the parts of podcasting that I found challenging have disappeared. Unapologetic Amplified is more than a podcast management company. Yes, they handle the tech side. Yes, they help you keep your messaging on point. But the founder of the company, Antoinette, has a background both in life coaching and in business coaching. So she's uniquely positioned to help you with all things from how to make sure your podcast supports your business or your revolutionary message, how to monetize, and how to learn to speak up in a bold and unapologetic way. If you're thinking about starting a podcast or if you have been alone to date in your podcasting journey, I strongly suggest you check out Unapologetic Amplified. 
Working with them is transformational. They're able to change what can be tedious and maybe burdensome process into a joyful and aligned one. You can learn more about their services at unapologeticamplified.com. You know, I felt like I was being kind by not telling them that to their face. And if they really feel like growing, I feel like they're bright people. They can figure it out on their own. It's about desire. How have you balanced that understanding that there's some people in your life that they're good people? Because I mean, nobody's all good. Nobody's all bad, but they're never going to understand your level of commitment or interest in social justice. They just don't care. How do you grapple with that? Or have you come to a point that you're just willing to accept some people as they are, but maybe limit your exposure? Or have you been graced with not knowing anybody like that? (laughs) I think you'd have to, I think everybody knows people like that in this, in this country. I think everybody does, but I think it's a tricky time for, for me to answer that question. Cause I feel like the pandemic brought relationships like to the forefront where you could, you, I really felt like I had very limited capacity to interact with a lot of people on a personal basis because my kids were constantly home. My partner was constantly home. You know, we were all worried about health and some basic stuff. And so, like you just said, if I would rather read a book by myself at night than hang out with you, like at this point, I'm not making that time and effort. Um, but that's not to say that I wouldn't be interested in people. Like if you, if you run into people in passing, like, I feel like I really do have a lot of love to give and a lot of care about what's happening and understand that there is a lot going on for everybody in this world, but I'm really still in the midst of reevaluating and rebuilding as we, I mean, now with this next variant, like, I don't know where we are in this cycle of ability to interact with people regularly. And I've been using almost like these virtual connections, talking with you, Dahlia, and like a lot of other people in in places that aren't necessarily here where I'm at physically and as a human being in, ter- in face-to-face interactions. And so there's been a lot of self-reflection about what it means to build a healthier social circle, how much of that has to be in person versus can you get support that you need from people virtually? You know, what does the composition of that group look like in order for me to fully feel seen and be able to be vulnerable and move forward in a really like strong way while also, you know, I, I kind of want people to add to my life at this stage because, you know, there's a lot going on and, and my heart is with those that I love, my kids, my family, you know, like I, I want to live in a much more intentional way with new friendship groups included. That might've been a very long circumstance, like circular answer. Now, I that, love but. that. That's so helpful. Cause I think a lot of people are so depleted right now, energetically, because living through the pandemic is traumatizing by itself. And like you said, that lack of energy is really revealing all the weak spots, like everywhere in the office and relationships at home. It's really bringing a lot of things to the surface that we typically could ignore. And now we just don't have capacity for tolerating it. So I think it's more important now than ever to put your own well-being first. I think, cause you said, and if that means you can't hang out with people, then, then, then you can't, right? You want to be able to have the full bucket in order to give out. And I think all of the work that we do, I mean, Misasha and I regularly talk about the need for boundaries and how we're feeling because these are not light topics that we all talk about. And, you know, I, I want to get better at it. I used to do this culture, like a community revision once a year, like a review of, and it was from this book, take time for your life by Cheryl Richardson. And you classify people into six categories and you do that, they can only show up in one category, whether it's friend, children, or sorry, family, children, your career community, spiritual community, your acquaintances, and your really close friends that you would pour your heart out to anybody like about everything with. 
And, and then once you list this conscious dump of everybody, you sort of go through and you're like, how do I feel about all, all these people? Do I want more of this person? Do I want less of this person? I did that at the start of the pandemic. And then I just rediscovered the list recently. And I was like, I think I want to just burn this and start again. Cause it feels so different. Hmm. Having sort of hold in to my survival cocoon for a while. And so I bet the acquaintance list would be very, very long at this stage for, for a lot of mm. us probably. And who do we want to yeah. move back into the buckets that fuel us again? And would those people meet our social justice, like, like the open-mindedness? Because I think that to me is the biggest thing at this stage, even if they're not interested in understanding the history of slavery per se, and how that has you know continued on to impact our institutions today. If they're interested in introspection, in human growth, in connecting with humanity in a deeper way, in respecting people's pronouns, in, in all of these things. And I think that doesn't matter so much where they are on the journey, if they're, if they're practicing the soft skills to bring to this sort of work, I think is what I'm looking for right now. Yeah, that resonates. That desire, that interest in connecting on a deeper level. There are just some people that don't live that way and that doesn't appeal to them. And they don't want to make more space for other people to feel a sense of belonging. They just want everything to conform to them. They're really self-centered or ethnocentric or just all about themselves. You know, I, I have no interest in spending a lot of time with that vibe. When you ask that question, I think that what it fundamentally comes down to is that people who don't necessarily understand how I feel about this or why this work is there don't really understand who I am, right? Or my family. And because it's so personal and those fears and the concerns and the worry are so prevalent, the joy and the happiness and just celebrating all of who my family is. Like you, I think one of the great things about humanity is that we really do have this curiosity about each other and want to learn about each other. And if we don't have that, then there, that doesn't make for a friendship, right? Or a relationship that I want to intentionally cultivate. I think that, you know, that is the thing about the pandemic, right? It has to be very intentional because you can't just, you know, grab a coffee with someone necessarily without, you know, 12 steps that have to happen before that. And, you know, that's assuming everything else is fine. So I have been very intentional about how I spend. And I would say I, I am that way, generally speaking, but <laughs> Sarah's nodding her head like, yeah, obviously. It's even more so now, right? Because I, I think that because of this work, I need to carve out more space to make sure that I am okay so that I can show up for my family, how I, how I need to show up for my family and extended family. And so who I want to spend time with are those people who I also want to make sure that they're okay. And they want to make sure I'm okay, you know? And so, and we yeah. do that in, in different ways and at different times. And sometimes it's not always an equal relationship, right? Sometimes I might be more concerned about them. They might be more concerned about me, but I think that we continue to know that we are there for each other. Those are the people that I want to to cultivate, not the people who will reach out maybe once, like let's say in June of 2020 and then, you know, disappear. Like right? stuff gets hard, <laughs> right? And you know, you've got stuff to do. Not that, right? It's more like the people that I know we are in this together, right? And they know we are in this together. And so we can, we, we have each other in that way. Yeah. As an introvert, did you find it was hard to balance needing people like that in your life who just make space for you and how overstimulated you were at home parenting with the partner in the house. Yeah. Oh my God, that is so <laughs> <laughs> I have no better answer. I have to say my Kindle is like my greatest friend because sometimes I'll just be like, just need some time. Like I've started reading my Kindle like first thing in the morning so that I can just just sort of have these this moment before everyone you know sort of needs something and I think for me it was really because I am that type of person too who even sort of cultivating those relationships at times is hard for me because I'm not necessarily the person who will reach out and be like hey do you want to get together or hey do you want to even get on a call I'm not I'm, I, I think I've gotten better at that for the people I really want to see but I I 
am not good at that. So I think that I got worse at it for a time because I just felt like so many people, like namely the three people who live in my house with me, just needed so much all the time that if there was any time left, I would just be sort of in a corner by myself, hoping that, or like a closet, let's say, so hoping that no one would find me for 10 solid minutes. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky- That's exactly how I imagine parenting to be. <laughs> it's all true. It is true. Like all the rumors, those are true. <laughs> But I'm sure like in hindsight, once your kids finally get to an age where they want personal space, they'll be like, wow, I just smothered mom, smothered, no self-awareness. Like, I don't know. Will they get to that stage? Like, when is that stage? Yeah. Give me some hope. Like- <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the person. Maybe they never will. That's hilarious. I, yeah, I had a question. I wondered if you noticed a difference and how gender roles played out in your experience of Japanese culture with one of you having a Japanese father and you having a Japanese mother. I know in my house, mom pretty much is the one who determines food culture exposure. So there are all these Southern dishes I have either never had or I don't know how to make because my mom was the non-American in the house. And I know had it been different that you know, the opposite would be true. Yeah. A hundred percent on the food side of things. Totally agree. And it's funny when I go back to visit my mom too, I know I'm there because my breakfast selection is like fish with miso soup and rice and the pickled vegetables, like that's breakfast. And that actually agrees with my body way better than Western breakfasts do, for example. And so there was a lot for me to unpack with gender roles and my mom and then growing up in America because my mom was a stay-at-home mom, Japanese immigrant, did all the home stuff. And then as I was basically getting ready to get my late teens, she went back to work. And then to contrast that with American culture that was like, as a woman, you must work, you, your identity is tied to how, and in this culture, like how much money you make and what your title is. And especially because, you know, Misasha and I both went to Harvard and that pressure also is, is real of like, I was told once when I left my corporate job to go be in just like to stop and and reevaluate my life after my dad passed, I was working in a coffee shop and several old colleagues were like, you're not living up to your potential. And I'm like, you can't even take a break. I can't even take a break. see that as a break. And I'm like, I'm not saying this is my life's aspiration, but if it was, what's wrong with that? You know, and and who are you to judge that? And so there was both explicit and implicit pressure to like do what my mom had not done until she decided to go back to work when, you know, when they necessitated it for, for home stuff. And so I still, I think I'm unpacking that. I think there's a reason that I am enough is this like the tag that's right there that resonates so much with me. Sonia Renee Taylor's work on, you know, being inherently enough and that it's okay for us to carve out space so that we are functional in order to pull, you know, pour our love into others and take care of others and do this work. I think I have fallen down and and continue to have to come back to remind myself that my bucket is worth filling up. And so that has been a great reminder. And I continue to have to work on that every time I get to that place of like, oh, I should have stopped. And before I got this flattened out, right, I, I should have kept my soul round, like my grandmother had beautifully told me a long time ago, that 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 is what we want is to have a fully round soul so that you can just offer it around. I sort of pancake myself on several occasions and have to keep reminding myself. That's a beautiful way to explain it. Fill up. Yeah. So that's a great visual. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know how much of that is my mom's role, but like it's, it's, how we see parents and, and all of that legacy does sort of affect us. And so without, I think, examination, that was a great question. I think you asked, I don't know, there must be other ways that, that the, the Japanese, the immigration role has played in how my gender stuff has shown up too. Mm. I love that question. Cause I, of my parents, my dad, hopefully my mom isn't going to hear this one, but my dad <laughs> is the better cook. Even though my mom is the white parent, we had a very Japanese household and there was a lot of pressure that is sort of associated with growing up Asian in America, stereotypically, that existed in my household. And I didn't have the Asian female like 
role model though in, in my family until I was sent to Japan for the summer. So then my aunts and my grandmother would just be like, oh, like you are Japanese, so we need to do all these things. I did have was the very Japanese father who was so strict about anything related to like, I mean, like curfew is the first thing that comes to mind because he would, he was like, well, I talked to his brother, my uncle, and you know, your cousins had a curfew of seven till they were married. And I was like, all right, like, let's what? And so <laughs> like, my dad was like, prom, what's this thing called prom? You know, like who would, this just seems totally made up in this American, like, you know, ridiculousness, like you're going to be home at like nine. And so, you know, there was a lot of sort of that and being the oldest, which Sarah and I both are. And then my brother, so I only have a younger brother, you know, sort of came through and they get away with everything yeah, it was completely oh, like he didn't have oh, that no. early my issue? brother's like rolling in it too oh. you know like it's, oh yeah. wow well, like I mean they could have just maybe I continued to like push their boundaries so much they're like whatever like he can just do whatever because you know we we wore ourselves out with me Sasha but but it was very like the expectations were very very different and then it was really interesting because I wrote my thesis in college on the equal employment opportunity law and how women and men were being treated so differently in Japan and how this law was coming to like sort of create this equality in the workplace and like my thesis was it wasn't going to work because there wasn't enforcement principles and then I got to go there and live my thesis for two full years where I was like oh funnily enough it doesn't work there are no enforcement but it was for those two years I really thought about how gender played a role for me in growing up, how it was playing a role for me in being in Japan and how to, how, if I am both white and Japanese, like, how do I, how do I fit into these, what I'm being shown? That's a great question. Yeah. Now my brain is like going, I know I have all these thoughts that I'm unpacking (laughs) now about how I was treated so differently than my brothers in that way. I do remember there being a lot of pressure as a girl in Japan. I had to look a certain way to be acceptable to leave the house. And so Mm. I had to chuck, just to walk to the 7-Eleven, what I was wearing was not good enough. And I had to change and do my hair and then put tucked a shirt in. Like it had to be a certain appearance to be able to leave the house. And I don't think my brothers got any of that stuff. They were allowed to roll out and whatever. It's so funny. Even now I am still discovering ways in which my brother and I were treated differently. And he didn't even know it either. Like. I've never received a gift from my aunts. Like I can't remember a gift, maybe like something small for graduation, but that's once in 18 years. And he recently revealed that he would get cash and gifts every time they visited. But he was the only nephew for years until someone else finally had a boy. And it's super irritating because you realize the levels of discrimination that you've experienced, they're so profound. You can't even know how much has happened to you. So for there to be anybody out there who's like, is sexism still a problem? And were you really harassed or why weren't you why didn't you feel flattered when this person said that to you? And why is it so offensive for someone to tell you to smile? It's like the depth of being treated different is so profound for anyone to question you getting touchy when someone reminds you the fact that some of us have to fight for everything, not literally everything, but we have to fight a lot more than other people do. It's just super irritating. I don't have any other <laughs> words. Yeah, well, and it no. reminds me again about like the, the idea of our buckets and all the more depletion is happening when you have more of these marginalized identities. And so we have to pay even more attention. I love like the nap ministry comes to mind and just this idea of we want it, rest is an act of rebellion sometimes. So necessary. Yeah. And you really realize during times of high stress, how exhausted you actually are. 
So I think everybody's been having that learning curve this year. I only have a couple more questions. I know it's getting late. I wanted to know how you dealt with the stress of being told you're not Asian enough when you started coming into podcasting and speaking up about AAPI issues, or has that not been part of adulthood? Was that more of a childhood thing? In adulthood for me, I haven't, I was told things more explicitly when I was a child. And now I think a lot of it is either the echoes of those voices or subtle nuance, but it's in my head a lot of the time. But I think, you know, Misasha and I, I love having her as my like sounding board. I don't know how people can do some of this work alone because there's times where I'm like, literally there's a BIPOC podcasters community on Facebook. And I'm like, are we BIPOC? Like, do we qualify? I don't know. Are we Asian enough for the Asian American podcasting group? Where do we feel okay asserting our identity? And where might it be more prudent if we say, no, like that group's intention is for really marginalized groups. And we still have our foot in the door with the white cultures. So do we want to impose our presence in some of these groups, you know? So even little things like joining Facebook groups to do our work leads to heavy discussion, but I don't think anybody's explicitly said anything. I just have vibes that I pick up in certain settings. I never even thought about, well, a couple of people did mention that to me in a BIPOC group for entrepreneurs that they didn't know whether or not they belong there. And I thought, well, of course you do, just because I always thought that Asian folks were people of color, but that some Asian folks didn't know, like hadn't gotten the news, which I think happens when you're raised in a country for people who actually moved here. If you got to be part of the majority, since race is a social construct, you wouldn't really know what all of those dynamics are like until you get here. So I could understand that, but then I, I don't know. It's really interesting. The divisions between marginalized groups inside the U S because I was excited to see BIPOC as a big umbrella term. So people could feel more cohesive under that umbrella. But then I also hear people feeling erased by the umbrella. Like they don't want to be, they think they're being sucked into some kind of different label when I saw it as just an umbrella term, not a new term. I think that, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, on that point, I think that's where it really feels like we have to remember that everybody experiences these terms and these labels and the sense of belonging and, and how they identify themselves individually, because I know some Asian people who've been like, oh, I don't really think about my Asian experience. I just, I I hang out with a lot of white people. So I don't really consider myself Asian. I've heard that all the way to uh, like, I'm very much Asian. And I lean into my, my identity as an, uh, the child of an immigrant parent who moved over here. And, and I think the same thing goes with, with terms like BIPOC. Some people won't, are comfortable with it and other people don't know, understand yet how they want to relate to that word and their own identities. So I just think, again, it just reminds me of that need for us to listen to people individually and not just lump them into a bucket because it's easier for us. But you, you know? can't scale that. So how will I make- I know, I know. Fast assumptions about people and do the <laughs> least and use like no energy at all to socialize with marginalized folks. It's a good point, right? If you you can't scale it, so you, you will have to be intentional. And I know that's a turn off on some people <laughs> along the way. I agree. Maybe this comes with being in my 40s too, where I don't particularly care how you're going to define me because I'm going to define myself. And I think it goes back to that part of the conversation where it was, you know, people, especially with being biracial, right? Or multiracial, everyone's always trying to, even the census, right? Till 2000, you were other, right? Mm. You weren't, you couldn't even pick more than one race. Sure. You can, I mean, you can question, but I know who I am and I'm telling you who I am. So either you're listening and then we can have this conversation or you're not going to listen. And then we're not going to be able to have this conversation. That's sort of like a, a good gauge for me, right? If I can tell people, because then they'll look at my kids and my kids are 
black, Japanese, and white. So then we have an even bigger conversation if we're going to try to pick just one, you know. I am hopeful that as when Sarah and I were growing up being biracial, it wasn't common, right? You would find like the couple people who were maybe biracial that you knew and sort of recognize each other, you know, yourselves and each other. But now it's way more common, I think, to be biracial, to be multiracial. And so hopefully, you know, it's not going to be people trying to fit people into a box so easily. And I know we want to fit people into a box because, you know, that's the way to generalize and that's the way to scale it and just make sense of, of things. But sometimes there are things that we shouldn't be making sense of, right? We can't break, bring it smaller. We have to make it larger. And so I think this race and identity is one of those things. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. But before we go, can you give everybody a little bit of a rundown of what the goal is of Dear White Women? What transformation do you want your readers to experience? And also, why do you focus on white women with your social justice work? I mean, I could, I'll take the first part of that about the transformation. There has been this increasing divide in this country between people who expect perfectionism and abide by cancel culture and this idea of you make a mistake and you will be defined by that for the rest of your life. And what I hope is a growing trend of people who understand that there are a lot of nuances and that we can be heart-led and that we aren't all taught evenly about our history, about ourselves, about how to think critically. And so we can meet people where they are and move people along in a more loving manner. And what we want people to understand who are new to this conversation about race or who want to level set again and understand a little bit more about people's stories, about our country's history and about what they can do differently is that it doesn't have to be so difficult. You don't have to be so scared of making a mistake and being canceled because there's another way to approach this. And we give you this, it's like a, I really appreciated Dahlia, what you said at the beginning of this show about it being a book you can use as a resource because we go through scenario by scenario and we give specific action steps, which was something that wasn't coming out of a lot of the books after 2020. That was very theoretical. And we really felt like we wanted to help answer the question we were always getting, which is what do I do? And so we give mm-hmm. you specific steps doing this, you know, that you can apply at your kitchen table, that you can do in your, you know, your workplace right away. So it's not this big, scary, huge thing you're trying to do, but it can be little things that will absolutely make a difference and have ripple effects in your daily life. And so we want people to feel both hopeful and armed with information to start making change right away. Mm. I love that. And Sarah always makes me answer the second part of this question, which is why white women, right? While the book is not just for white women, our platform is called Dear White Women. And that is the question we get asked the most, because I think people sometimes have a very hard time with why are we singling out white women or why are we calling people white in the first place is sort of this question that we get sometimes because we've been called racist for calling people white, which is confusing because I saw your I'm not sure. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure what else we we are gonna be calling people if we're okay calling people black and Asian. It must be so nice to like for that to be like your biggest issue with racism is that like oh people call me white. Like really? Must be nice. That's all I could say to that. Yeah, we have we have sort of the similar eye roll. But you know, so it's it's kind of a twofold answer, right? First of all, we know by virtue not only of being women, but also knowing women, the inherent power that women have in, in this society is often really undervalued or devalued, or a lot of our lives we have sometimes been told that we are not, we don't really matter, or you know, we're not going back to that, the gender and sexism issues, we've always been put in this sort of box, but there is so much power that women have in their communities, right? In their homes, at their workplaces with wallet power, you know, even that controlling spending for their households to make change. And so that's something that we really, really wanted to tap into. And secondly, white women, because white women, by virtue of being white in this country, have white privilege, right? And experience life differently because they are white in, in, in this way that they are heard in spaces where other voices are silenced. 
at times. And sometimes they're the ones doing the silencing, but sometimes they, that, the, that voice that they have can be a really powerful voice for change. And white women have experienced that sexism that we've talked about, but also have this power. So what if we could harness that power, right? This is a power that has, that can really, you know, uproot systemic racism, which is literally the tagline of our show, like helping white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. Because if we can hook, and I remembered it this time, like I didn't actually have to write out our tagline. <laughs> this, That's um, why I was smiling. I, I saw you smiling because I always make Sarah say the tagline because I always forget it. I'm like, there's a lot of words in there. But but this is this is that group that has for so long sort of been that connection, right? Between sort of this white supremacist supremacy culture and divesting from it. Right. And I was just reading, you know, these bell hooks quotes this morning where she has this and, and like the first one that I was reading was really about that that the role of white women, right? If we are going to be, if all women are going to be unified together, then that is an issue of white women stepping away from white supremacy and choosing a different path. And so that's what we're trying to do here through education, through narrative, through action, right? Because because racism affects and hurts all of us. So we can if we can get to that understanding, then then we look forward, right? We look forward towards that change. I know my upbringing would have been entirely different if I had come across women, white women who had done any kind of anti-racism work because the white folks in positions of power that you mainly have to deal with as a child of color are white female or femme presenting educators. And they were the ones saying slavery wasn't that bad. And also knowing the age bracket of like the boomers that educated me, these are also people who most likely protested integration and clearly didn't want us there, even though integration happened maybe 20 years prior to my birth in my town, probably that's about it. So the major role that white women have played in upholding white supremacy culture in this country has been downplayed a lot in the past, but I see now people being called to task and just the multitude of Karen memes on the net show us what violence women who have bought into white supremacy culture are capable of. So this is really important work. And I am glad you're here to do it because this is not, you know how you have energy for some types of activism and absolutely not for others. I absolutely, (laughs) I can't. (laughs) So glad y'all are here to do the work. I can hand people the book and that's it. So where can everybody find out more about you and the work that you're doing and your show? Thanks for this. You can find all of our information lodged at our website, dearwhitewomen.com. And you can listen to our podcast on the website or anywhere you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever. You can read our book. And the best is if you can leave us an Amazon review after you read it, but you can buy it from your independent bookstores. And of course, you can also buy it from any major bookstore and you can request it at your library. And think our social media handles. That's right. Twitter at DWW podcast and Instagram at dear white women podcast is where you can find us. Thank you so much. If there was one thing you could tell everyone who's listening, they would understand it, internalize it and carry it with them forever. What would it be? What I feel is coming up for me is that your life is better. If you spend time reflecting on yourself and who you are, and being the best version of yourself first, as opposed to just buying the story and the Kool-Aid from society about pursuing money and power first. I love that. I thought you were going to say you are. Your bucket is worth filling. You are also, let's do that. Yes. You are also inherent. You are inherently enough. Mine is going to be keep asking why. I think a lot of times, and I have young kids, so I found myself saying, yeah, I have one kid who will never stop asking that. But 
I've been thinking about this more and more. And I think we have largely as a society stopped asking why. And we have just taken stuff that is being told to us. But what we have also seen along the way is that what has been told to us all along has not been the full story. Sometimes it's not been the correct, the truth, period. But at least most of the time, it's not the full story. And I think if we continue to ask why, then we continue to look for something better, right? The full, the full answer. We look to be inclusive of everyone. We start to question what is being told to us. That critical thinking skill is something that we value in kids and we forget in adults. And we absolutely cannot forget that as adults. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.